Amen. You may be seated. Friends, as we look back at the changes over the last two years, and as we survey what people have experienced, I can tell you without flinching that journalists have lied, doctors have done great harm, and politicians have governed for selfish gain. But one thing has not changed and never will. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When all else fails, He still remains. And that is why we can trust in His living and abiding Word. So please turn with me now in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9. And this afternoon, I would like to draw your attention particularly to verses 6 to 9. And you'll be helped if you follow along with that sermon outline we provided for you in your bulletin. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 9. Listen carefully as I read God's holy word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verses 6 to 9. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you are a God who gives good gifts to his children because you delight in them. Oh Lord, we pray that you would now minister to our hearts so that we would be reminded of your redemptive and loving purposes for our lives. Teach us not to put our hope in earthly joys but to be satisfied in our Savior, in whom we lack no good thing, both now and for all eternity. In His name we pray. There used to be a time, a long time ago, when marriage in the eyes of society was considered to be for those people who simply could not control their sexual urges. Yes, there were even Christians who viewed marriage in this way. The really spiritual people, on the other hand, were the celibate ones 
those who practiced sexual abstinence, those who had their desires under control and did not want to fulfill those desires in marriage. And there are some parts of the world where people still think this way. And they venerate those who are single. However, in our times, there has been a massive cultural shift. Singleness is now frowned upon. Oh dear, she's single. But she has a terminal disease. If you're not having sex, you're not human. If you don't have a girlfriend, you're either gay or from another planet. You're a freak. Even during Christmas time, journalists who have nothing better to report on lament about how singles are unavail un unable to avail of those two-for-one restaurant offers. Thanks to the cold weather and cultural pressure, singles are busy looking for lovers, making every effort to cure their singleness this Christmas season. On the other hand, some are urging us to look on the bright side of being single this December. After all, you don't have to spend money on gifts. And according to one writer, you get the luxury of being completely selfish for the duration of the holidays. Confused? Well, the members at the Church of Corinth were also confused about how to think about marriage and singleness. Corinthian culture had started to influence the minds of these believers, and so Paul writes to them in order to point them back to the wisdom of the cross. There were some at this church who wrongly thought that what they did with their bodies didn't matter, and so they gave in to sexual immorality. Others thought that since the new age in Christ had dawned, they could do away with sex and marriage. But Paul responds by saying, it doesn't matter what the culture says. As believers in Christ, we are called to put on the mind of Christ and think Christianly about these matters. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Each person ought to lead the life that God has assigned to them. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. And they are to do so in holiness. And since the Holy Spirit abides both in the individual, in the physical body of believers, as well as the corporate body of Christ the church, it is God Himself who enables us to lead lives of holiness for His glory. In other words, He tells the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality because of who they were. They were called to pursue self-control by the power of God. And we can only do this by believing and continuing in the message of the cross. And so in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7, Paul says that God has given married people the duty of sex to resist the temptation to sexual immorality. And so husbands and wives are commanded to sexually satisfy each other for each other's spiritual good. This is how married people flee sexual immorality and pursue self-control to the glory of God. Now, after reading that, you might be tempted to think that marriage is ultimate. Maybe society is right. Maybe I am a loser. 
After all, Paul presents to us this high view of of marriage in Ephesians 5, where he says it's a living parable of God's covenant-keeping love with His bride. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And so if you're not married, if you're single, you might be wondering, well, if sex in marriage is a means of God's grace to married folk to flee sexual immorality, then, then what about me? I don't have a spouse. How can I flee sexual immorality and live a self-controlled life, glorifying God with my body? But what Paul does in verses 6 to 9 is that he teaches us that marriage is not ultimate and that singleness is equally valid and blessed by God. Just as the Lord enables married people to glorify Him with their bodies, He also enables singles to glorify Him with their bodies. And so here's what we can learn from this passage. Number one, it is good to desire singleness. Number two, God gives gifts to singles. Number three, singles may choose to marry. And then finally, we'll consider how we can apply these truths to our lives, especially to those who are unmarried or single. Look with me at verses 6 to 7. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. So a concession is not a command, but a permission or a wish. In other words, Paul's saying, you may do this if you so desire. And what does he wish? I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, given the fact that he has been just talking about marriage, he's referring to his marital status. Now, we know that Paul was unmarried, or as we would say today, he was single. Now, I've mentioned in the past that I'm really not fond of that word because it can be misleading, as though a single person has no relationships. No, if you're unmarried, you did not fall from a tree or land here in a spaceship from Krypton. You have an earthly biological family, a father, a mother, perhaps siblings. And even if you don't have these natural relationships, if you are a believer and you're a member of this church, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. You have many spiritual fathers and mothers in Christ, people who love you and care for you. You have people you are both accountable to and are responsible for. And so being single does not mean solitary. Now, after expressing how that term can be misleading, some of you have since asked me, well, pastor, is that a bad word? Should I not use it? No, it's not a bad word, and it's fine to use it. Just be aware of what it means and what it does not mean. Now, it appears from the account of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts, in Act, in Acts chapter 6 and 7 <coughs> that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, usually members of the Sanhedrin were married men. And so that raises the question, well, what kind of single state is Paul referring to? Was Paul a widower? Or did his wife leave him after he became a Christian? We simply don't know. But could he have married if he wanted to? Well, he certainly could have. And we also know that if he did, the Lord Jesus would have been okay with that. 
1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So since we don't have this specific information about Paul's past, what we do know and we can see clearly from this text is that he was indeed unmarried or single, and he wishes that everyone would desire that. <clears throat> and beloved, you must understand that the Spirit of Christ speaking to you through this verse is not asking you to desire something that is not good. The Holy Spirit would never do that. If you have the slightest doubt whether singleness is good or not, just look at verse 8. Look down at verse 8. It is good for them to remain single as I am. The Greek text simply reads, it is good that they remain as I am. Paul's emphasis in this chapter is to teach us that it is good to follow Christ in whatever state we are. So singleness is not a curse. It is good. Contrary to what your parents think or what your culture says, the Holy Spirit says otherwise. In verses 29 to 35, Paul says that there are many advantages to being single. And one of them is that unmarried people can serve the Lord with an undivided devotion in a way that married people simply cannot. And so he says in verse 38, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he, he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Or take verse 40, for example, in chapter 7, where he says, a widow is free to be married to who she wishes only in the Lord, yet, in my judgment, he says, she is happier if she remains as she is. Even though Paul had a high view of Christian marriage, he seems to have an equally high view of singleness, especially when it comes to kingdom service. But singleness ought to be desired not just for pragmatic reasons, you know, <clears throat> because you have lots of time on your hands, and so if you're single, you can be useful in serving the body, that's true. But in order for us to think Christianly about singleness, we must ask a very important question. If marriage in this age is a picture of Christ and the church, well, what is singleness a picture of? And to answer that question, we must go back to the beginning to understand God's purpose for our redemption. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, we read these verses. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And by that, of course, God meant make lots of babies. And so to help them do that, He brought them together in marriage. God wanted to fill the earth with His glory through many image bearers who made much of Him. But instead of trusting in God and pursuing His glorious purpose for our lives, mankind sinned and turned against Him. Our sin, our rebellion separated us from God and brought us under His judgment. 
But God in His graciousness gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, a promise that the seed of the woman would save us from our sin and from our perishing, that a child would be born who would reverse the fall. And even though mankind continued to sin, God's plan of redemption kept on unfolding in the lives of those who believed in His promises. <clears throat> and so He called Abraham to Himself and said in Genesis 12:2, I will make of you a great nation, and not just a great nation, the nation of Israel, but as God's purposes unfolded, He also told Abraham in Genesis 12:4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then he said in Genesis 22, verse 18, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So under the old covenant, everyone understood that God's saving promises would come about, would be fulfilled through the means of marriage and offspring. That's why genealogies are such a big deal in the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, singleness was not pursued. Marriage was the norm and the ideal. Under the Old Covenant, one of the emblems of God's favor and blessing to His people, Israel, was fertility. Barrenness was a curse. If a man died without children, he would not have a legacy, and his name would be cut off from the land of the living, to use an Old Testament phrase. And yet we know that God in His grace and power was able to bless even barren couples, wasn't He? For the sake of His redemptive plan, He was able to carry out His redemptive plan and bring about its fulfillment on Christmas Day, when the long-promised seed of the woman, the great offspring of Abraham, in whom all the nations would be blessed, the true Israel, in whom we are set aside as the people of God, Jesus was born to take away our sins, and in Him we receive all our salvation blessings. This is how God fulfilled His plan. The Son of God took on human flesh, and He lived a sinless life under the law so that He could offer His righteousness to sinners as a gift of grace through faith. Not only was He truly God, He was also truly man, truly human. Think about this. The only perfect human being who ever walked the face of the earth was single. Friends, you are not less of a human being if you don't have sex. And then Jesus did something that was absolutely foolish in the eyes of His family and in the eyes of the culture. Instead of pursuing self-fulfillment, Jesus laid down His life as a sacrifice. He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners and inaugurated the new covenant in His blood. He was, as Isaiah 53 says, was cut off from the land of the living. But His great work produced many offspring. Isaiah 53 verse 10, Jesus' saving death brings about the birth of the children of God. Children born not through procreation in marriage, but born of God, born of His Spirit. 
Jesus paid the penalty that was due us so that in Him we could have eternal life and be reconciled to God. Friends, that's why we rejoice on Christmas Day. Because the Son of God came to take away our sins and to save us from the wrath of God. And He did this through His death and resurrection from the dead. He did this for all who would turn away from their sins and put their trust in Him. So if you're not a Christian, repent and turn to Christ. Don't believe the lies of the world. Look to Jesus. He created the world. Your sins will condemn you on the last day. And your good deeds will not save you, your family will not save you, and your culture will not save you. Turn to Christ. He alone can save you from your sins. Friends, turn to Him and you will know the joy of Christmas Day. But because of Jesus' coming, something changed. Remember I said He inaugurated the new covenant in His blood. The coming of Jesus inaugurated the new creation. You see, the shadow of human marriage pointed forward to the union of Christ and His church, and this is what Jesus accomplished on His cross. Because of what He accomplished, the people of God are no longer those who are born through physical birth, but through spiritual new birth. <clears throat> and that means that if you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of Abraham, heirs through faith. And that means as New Covenant believers, our identity is not in marriage. It's not in having children. Our identity is in Christ. Marriage is not ultimate. Christ is. And my single friends, you have that already. In Him, you are complete in every way. In Him, you lack no good thing. You are already part of God's eternal family, the church. The church is His bride. What matters is not earthly marriage, but your marriage to Christ. We see in Isaiah 56 verse 5 that God promises that He will give eunuchs. Eunuchs are men who are unable to have children. He will give them a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Friends, don't you see, under the new covenant, the church is called to multiply not by having lots of children, but by making lots of disciples. Disciples of all nations by having many spiritual children, something that you as a single person can do. So marriage is great. It points us to Christ and His church, but, but so does singleness. You know, John Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage, notes four ways in which the gospel shines brightly through singleness. You can see this in your outline. Number one, in a godly single life, we get to see that the family of God grows not by propagation through sexual intercourse, but by regeneration through faith in Christ. Number two, in a godly single life, we get to see that relationships in Christ are more permanent and more precious than relationships in families. And, of course, it's wonderful when 
relationships and families are also relationships in Christ, but we know that it's often not the case. Some of you who have unbelieving parents or family members, you know this. You know this, don't you? You know this by experience, how your family can hinder your obedience to Christ. Number three, through a godly single life, we are reminded that marriage is temporary and finally gives way to the relationship to which it was pointing all along, Christ and the church. The way a picture is no longer needed when you see face to face and finally. So my single friends, you know, this is what married people are reminded of or should be reminded of when they look at you. You are a living, breathing theological lesson. Number four, we get to see the truth that faithfulness to Christ defines the value of life. All other relationships get their final significance from this. No family relationship is ultimate relationship to Christ is. Beloved, I want you to be convinced that singleness is good. I hope you see that. Marriage is not a superior state of existence compared to singleness. No, they are both equally valued and blessed according to Scripture. You know, culture has <coughs> discipled us so well. Culture has discipled us to look down on unmarried people as though they are second-class Christians, incomplete. Asian parents often lament that, oh, if, if I could only get my children married, then I can die in peace. What a shameful, God-dishonoring thing to say. Because if we don't, what will people say about our children? Or worse, what will people say about us? It's an idolatrous way of thinking. Here's one that I really hate. Oh, so you're single and ready to mingle. And what, you're married and ready to be buried? No, thank you. We, we don't want any kind of worldly mingling for our singles. Brothers and sisters, we do this even in the church. Well-meaning people will go up to a, an unmarried woman or a man and say things like, are you still single? You know, sometimes it's just a non-verbal kind of disappointing look. Sometimes we just don't know what to do with singles. Hey, brother, I'd like you to meet my friend. He's single. Oh. You know, it's like we have our own caste system in the church these days. These are the untouchables. Singles and unvaccinated folks. We just don't know what to do with them. We just put up with them. One day, someday, they might get married. One day, someday, they might get vaccinated. Then we can finally relate to them. So, married folk, don't make unmarried men and women feel like they're less important or less valuable. No, they are in Christ. They are precious brothers and sisters. Paul thinks that single people should glorify God with their bodies by living self-controlled lives of sexual purity. He wishes that all were single like him, but he recognizes that this may not be possible for everyone. See, God enables different people in the body of Christ 
in different ways. And that brings us to our second point. God gives gifts to singles. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul says, I would love to see this happen in the church, but ultimately, that's God's prerogative. He is the one who sovereignly gives gifts to His people, one in this way or in this manner and another in another way. In other words, God empowers by His Spirit married people in one way and unmarried people in another way to live self-controlled lives. Remember, the context of this passage is for all Christians to flee sexual immorality. Now, the word gift here is the word charisma, <clears throat> which means it's a grace gift. This is the same word he uses in 1 Corinthians 1.7. You are not lacking in any gift. It's the same word that he uses for spiritual gifts in chapter 12, verses 4 to 7 and verse 11. Let me read that for us. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So, how do you know if you have this gift, and how does it work? Well, I think the next two verses can help us. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, who are these people, the unmarried and the widows? Well, a widow is someone whose husband has died. According to verse 39 of chapter 7, such a woman is free to marry another believer if she wants, and the unmarried can refer to different people. It depends on the context. On one hand, it could refer to someone who has never been married, or it could also refer to someone who is divorced. Look at verse 10. The wife should not separate, that means she should not seek a divorce, but if she does, she should remain what? unmarried, meaning as she is in that divorced state. And Paul says to the widow who has been married, right, the widow was married at one point, and the divorced person who was also married, he says, be like me. Remain as I am in your single state. It's a good thing. And so this tells us that God can give you this gift even if you were married once, having, a different, having received a different kind of gift. But how do you know if you have this gift? Well, look at verse 9. Follow the argument. It is good if they remain single, but each has his own gift from God, his own enabling by the Spirit. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says, <clears throat> here's how you know that you don't have that gift. You cannot exercise self-control. You burn with passion. Those two phrases are parallel to each other. 
Now, here's what this text does not mean. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that if you're watching pornography or giving into some form of sexual immorality, you should use your sinfulness as an excuse to get married. Unfortunately, that's the way this text has often been read, as though marriage will fix your sin problem. No, only Jesus is your Savior, not a spouse. Anyone who thinks like this will only find out very soon that your sinful heart will continue to give in to sexual immorality even after marriage. So single people, don't look at marriage as this guilt-free state where you can fulfill your selfish desires. That's not what a God-glorifying marriage is. If you want to hear more about that, go to our website and listen to last week's sermon. When Paul says it is better to marry than to burn with passion, he doesn't mean that marriage is a savior for sin. He means marriage is the alternative state for those who do not have this gift. Now, what does it mean to burn with passion? What does it mean if one cannot exercise self-control? You see, (coughs) self-control is really the point. You can see it in verse 5. We're looking at chapter 7, verse 5, and now we're looking at self-control again in this verse. To burn with passion simply means to have strong sexual desires. And when he says they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, it doesn't mean that they're giving into sin and therefore they should marry. No, the contrast is between Paul and these people. He says, be like me, but if you cannot exercise self-control, then you should marry. So, if they're sinning, they ought to first pursue self-control in their single state. Friends, that is a requirement for all Christians, irrespective of what state you're in. When you read Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus, you can see that the Spirit wants all believers, young men, young women, older men, older women, to pursue self-control. God wants you to pursue sexual purity. This is His will for you. Beloved, Christ has freed you from the power of sin, and sin is no longer your master. You can say no to the flesh, no to sexual temptation. You can pursue sexual purity in the power of the Spirit. The works of the flesh is sexual immorality. But the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23, is what? Self-control. So repent and ask Christ for forgiveness. Ask Him to cleanse you of your sin. Give no opportunity for the flesh. Remember the gospel and grow in the knowledge of Christ. Live by the Spirit. Give heed to the Spirit's words and you will crucify the desires of your flesh. Love Christ and it will kill your love for sin. And as you do that, you will come to realize if you have this gift or not. You see, this is a gift, a manifestation of the Spirit that God gives certain people who desire or choose singleness as a state. Through this gift, God empowers these people not to be distracted by sexual desires, like Paul. It doesn't mean that they will not be tempted. 
but it does mean that they will have their desires under control. They will have their desires under control in this sense. In this sense. They will not want to fulfill those desires in marriage. They will be unusually content and incredibly fruitful. Think about the other gifts. Just like all Christians are called to serve, but some are unusually gifted in service, aren't they? That's why service is listed as a gift in Romans 12. And so this gift looks like remarkable self-control over sexual desires and contentedness. Those who have this gift may choose to remain single in order to serve the Lord with an undivided devotion in a way that married people with responsibilities simply cannot. And friends, it is a choice. It is a choice. And that brings us to our third point. Singles may choose to remain single, either for a season or for a lifetime, or they may marry. It is a godly desire to pursue singleness, and it is a godly desire to pursue marriage. It's even a godly desire to pursue singleness after a long season of marriage, like these widows Paul is addressing. And it is a godly desire, desire to pursue marriage after a season of singleness. It is a choice to remain and a choice to marry. I hope you can see that from these verses. Now, there are two other verses that can help us. One is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37. Look at verse 37. Here Paul is addressing someone who is engaged, but is rethinking his marriage in light of the second coming. And he says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, same language, and has determined this in his heart, that person may remain single. It's up to him. Here's the second passage. Matthew 19, verses 10 to 12. And I think this is what drives Paul's theology of singleness. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees, if you remember, were arguing with Jesus about divorce. Is it okay to divorce your wife for any cause? You remember that? And Jesus said to them, no, you can't divorce your wife for any silly reason and then remarry. If you did that, you would be committing adultery, he said. When his disciples heard that, they said, well, in that case, it's better not to marry. And Jesus says, that is, that, that is actually a viable option. But here's what you should know. Listen to what he says, Matthew 19. Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he tells them that there are eunuchs. Eunuchs are men who do not marry because they are unable to have children. And he says there are eunuchs, men who don't marry because they have a physical defect from birth. Some have been injured by men, castrated. And there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, there are some who chose to remain single for the sake of kingdom service. Beloved, if this is what you desire and choose, you can pray and ask the Lord for this gift, this manifestation of the Spirit for the common good 
where you're not distracted by sexual desires and find yourself able to give yourself to the work of ministry in ways that married people simply cannot. You know, there are places that you may be able to go and evangelize where it would be hard to take a wife and children. You know, there's so much more that could be said about this, but you'll have to wait till we get to the end of chapter 7. But here's another question that some of you may have. You might be wondering, well, how can you say on one hand that the Spirit sovereignly gives you gifts as He sees fit, and how can you then say you can choose or desire? Well, friends, that's because God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. Take the gift of tongues in this letter. Paul says in chapter 12 that the Spirit gives to each member whatever gift he wants. And then in verse 30, Paul asks, again, I'm talking about chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 30, Paul asks the question, do all speak in tongues? The answer is no, obviously. And then in chapter 14, verse 5, he says, I wish all speak in tongues. It's very similar to what he's doing here, isn't it? I wish all were as I myself am. And then he says in four, chapter 14, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 39, that people may earnestly desire certain spiritual gifts. So God's gifting and your choosing are not opposed to each other. So what does all of this mean for you singles? And that brings us to point number four. How should you apply these truths? Number one, rejoice in your singleness and give thanks. Rejoice in your singleness and give thanks. Oh, friends, remember your identity in Christ and rejoice in His salvation. In Him you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1, 3-4. You want to hear something spectacular that you can rejoice in? Your names are written in heaven. Have a party over that. Your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you have been united to Christ by faith through His Spirit and nothing can separate you from His love. Rejoice in the eternal family that He has given you. No matter which place in the world you go, you will have that Christian family. Rejoice and give Him thanks. Give Him thanks. Remember that gratitude kills discontentment. Friends, you are much more, so much more than your sexuality. Remember Psalm 31 verse 15, that our times are in God's hands. And brothers and sisters, those are good hands. Those are loving hands. Those are wise hands. He may give you a long season of singleness followed by a short season of marriage. Or He may give you many years of married life followed by a short period of singleness. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Glorify Him and be fruitful in every season of life. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 34, verse 10. Number two, flee sexual immorality. That's the point of the passage. 
The Lord wants you to glorify Him with your bodies, whether you're single and desire marriage or whether He has given you the gift of singleness to serve Him in unique ways. So pray and pursue holiness with your brothers and sisters in the congregation. After saying no to sexual temptations, put on love. Build one another up spiritually. You know, some of you have been so busy saying no to sin, you haven't been saying yes to righteousness and to service and to building others up. Pray that you would be more fruitful in evangelism and discipleship. Number three, reject cultural ideas of singleness. Reject cultural ideas of singleness. Brothers and sisters, you are not doomed to a life of loneliness. Don't believe that. That's a lie from the devil. If you're lonely, it's not because you're single. It's because you don't understand that you're a member of the household of God. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are part of something far more significant than your earthly family. You are part of an eternal family. Your life has immense meaning and cosmic purpose. Marriage is not ultimate. Don't idolize marriage. If you do, trust me, it'll let you down. Because God is in the business of tearing down idols. Marriage won't satisfy you. Only Christ will. And only Christ does. So find your rest, your satisfaction, and your delight in Him alone. And then, should you choose to marry, you will be able to live the married life to God's glory. And if you do marry, remember that marriage is temporary. Marriage as we know it will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 34, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. However, these relationships that you have with your spiritual brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and mothers will last for all eternity. It's a blessing that comes with believing the gospel. You heard that in our call to worship. Mark 10, verses 29 to 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. He's referring to our natural families and the blessings of this world. No one who has left these things for my sake and for the gospel's sake who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. He's talking about the church, our spiritual family, and its blessings now and also in the age to come, eternal life. So invest in these relationships now. Brothers and sisters, don't let earthly joys like marriage obscure your vision of heaven. Number four, don't waste your singleness. Don't waste your singleness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Whether you are single and desire to get married someday or you have the gift of singleness, 
give, your stud, give yourself to studying God's Word. You know, without putting on the mind of Christ and being strengthened in His Spirit, how can you grow yourself? And how can you serve others? So use this God-given season to be devoted to His Word and give yourself to undistracted service in the body or even mission. Young women, if you long to be married someday, and I say young women because we have a lot of single young women at Grace. You know, one day if you desire to be married and have kids, you're not going to get the time to study your systematic theology when you have to get up in the night and feed that baby. Do it now. Do it now. You know, the Lord has given you a tremendous advantage, whether this is a season or for a lifetime. He has kept you from the responsibilities of marriage and children. Be useful for the kingdom. That's what singleness is for. Some of you love your singleness because it's giving you the opportunity to be irresponsible for the longest possible time. If that's you, then you need to repent and get busy. Get busy reading, studying, serving, discipling, evangelizing. And finally, number five, pray for clarity as you serve. If you believe that the Lord has given you this gift, if you feel that the Lord is enabling you to be content, that you're exercising self-control over your sexual desires in a way that it doesn't distract you, and you don't feel the need to pursue marriage, pray that the Lord will give you clarity in that, that He will make it clear. But remember that this gift, like every other gift, remember it is given for what? For the common good. And that means that the Lord will make it clear to you as you serve, as you obey Him. So get busy serving the body of Christ. And that's when you know if you'll be distracted by temptations. That's when you'll know how strong your desires are. Speak to your elders and let us tell you what we have observed in your life and let us help you think through this. Beloved, you have only one life. And both marriage and singleness in a fallen world will have its own trials and its own joys. Each one has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. Whatever you choose, find your rest in Christ alone and glorify Him with your body. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be strengthened by your Spirit, to keep believing in the gospel of our Savior. Lord, produce in us the fruit of self-control, whether we are single or married, so that we may celebrate holiness. Help us remember that our bodies are members of Christ. And as each one of us has received a gift, 
Help us use that gift to serve one another as good stewards of your varied gifts. Be glorified in the church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.